0: Isn't this an extraordinary sound? It's the song, if song is the right word, of the blue whale. The recording's been speeded up as, in fact, the vocalizations of the blue whale are so deep, they are at such a low frequency, they're actually almost completely inaudible to the human ear. Tales play a big part in this climate crisis conversation, as you'll hear. But the overall subject of this episode is art and the role that art can play in helping us connect emotionally with the sometimes overwhelming immensity of the climate and biodiversity crisis. I'm Verity Sharp, and in fact, I was talking to a climate scientist not so long ago who was talking about the fact that she nearly quit her job because she was... Depressed by the realities of her data and also presenting that data to policy makers who were not really taking that much action. But then she witnessed the work of some artists who'd made a huge life size ice sculpture of a polar bear outside where a climate conference was being held. And of course, over the week of the conference, that bear gradually melted. And it was the power of that visual metaphor that helped her gather strength and actually find a way to keep going, a lot of the time by now combining her vital scientific work with that of visual artists. So, on today's episode, the talk isn't of bears, it's of creatures of the deep, as the Climate Psychology Alliance's Caroline Hickman is talking to marine artist Sonia Shemalzadeh.
1: Hi, Sonia. Thanks ever so much for coming along today. And I, I just want to start by recognizing that being friends with me might be a bit uncomfortable for you sometimes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay.
1: Well, I think I'm right, aren't I? Because uh, we, we had weeks of planning for this podcast, didn't we?
2: So Caroline rang me last night <laughs> to ask if I was free today. <laughs> And I never know what to expect when I get um, a call from you. It, it's always it always turns into a bit of an adventure, which I love. So, no, it's not uncomfortable. It's fun.
1: Oh, that's a relief. I'm so
2: I'm, that's nice to
1: hear. Yeah. We have had lots of fun together. So we've done lots of research projects together, and bringing art and psychotherapy together, and we became friends around our sort of mutual love and care about. Uh, Wales particularly yeah, and climate change and that's that's where this comes together so I want you to tell us a little bit about where it all started for you tell us about your art
2: So I've always made art since I was a little girl um, and then I studied art at university I went to art school in London and all of the work I was making was about our environment our natural environment so it, alre- it already um because of my passion in conservation it was inbuilt in my artwork everything I made so and people used to tell me that whenever I had to stand up and present my work they would say it's quite political actually mm-hmm. and um, so during my degree um, I had a tutor that told me to look into courses which brought those two interests together mm-hmm. so art and the environment and one did pop up down in Cornwall at Falmouth University. Mm. So I, I went and did that and there was lots of artists as well as physicists. And um, there was an ornithologist on our course that was studying birds in Africa. Um, and we, all of our disciplines, we would, we would talk about our disciplines in terms of the environment and um, climate change and other environmental issues.
1: And tell me a little bit about some of the art that you were producing at the time when you were on the course. What did it look like? Give us a picture.
2: So shall I start with the, the ones that I was making on my degree? Yeah. So that was all to do with trees, and I started to make um, sculptures out of cardboard boxes of trees. So I was using the material and thinking about the material and what, where it came from and then using it to try and reimagine where it came from. So the cardboard boxes, I would open out and collect them all off the streets of London and then just roll them into tree rings. And in the end, I made this monumental-sized sculpture that was bigger than us. And it looked really solid, but it was made out of flimsy cardboard boxes. And it was kind of like a a memorial. I called it a memorial to the trees that had been chopped down and turned into these flimsy everyday items.
1: Mm. So as an artist you had a sense that you were working with the spirit of these, other creatures, the trees, and I know later on we're going to talk about whales, is that right?
2: Yeah, yeah, so always thinking, always being sensitive to to what I was using and um, the the path they had taken into my hands and the fact that we had destroyed them basically. Mm.
1: I know it might sound odd, but do you talk to them whilst you're creating the art? What sort of relationship
2: have you got with them? I didn't talk to the boxes. Mm. Um, <laughs> That's allowed, yeah. <laughs> but I am a bit of a tree hugger, yeah. so I go out into the woods a lot. Um, when we used to live, I used to live next door to Caroline, and we lived next to a wood, a woodland. So, yeah, um, yeah, I'm a tree hugger. Um, I'm not so. I don't really talk to them, though. Maybe I do in my mind.
1: So, so it's your imagination. Well, mm. we'll 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 come to the whales in a minute because maybe maybe whales are easier to relate to than trees. But t- tell me more about the course. So, how did your art develop then from the trees?
2: So then I moved down to Cornwall to do my masters, mm. and I was living by the sea, and I did quite a bit of rock climbing. So I was right on the water's edge all the time, and. Because of the environmental part of the course, I um, I was spending time on beaches, and there was lots and lots of plastic on the beaches, and this was about 10 years ago. And I just thought, this is coming out of the sea, so that means it's spending time in the sea, and there's living creatures in, in that body of water, so they're surrounded by these plastics. And so then I started to research it, and I found this fact that there was on average 46,000 pieces of plastic in every square mile of ocean, which I know has gone up a lot since since we found out more. And um, so I just thought that's awful that we're polluting the oceans. So then I wanted to create, I, in my mind, I wanted to try and show people what they must be experiencing mm-hmm. to try and communicate that kind of issue. And and then I started to think about um, whales and how big they are and how they're being impacted. So a lot of them are ingesting plastics. And and I'd never seen a whale before and I didn't know how big they were. And, and I just thought, okay, well, the only way I'm gonna find out how big they are is if I draw one life size. And the only way I can draw one life size is on a beach because you can't really get spaces big enough to draw a 30 meter long blue whale, so. So, yeah, I use the, the beach as my studio.
1: Right, Sonia. Now, this is going to be one of those moments where you completely minimise what you do, and I'm going to be going, right, Sonia, you didn't just use the beach as your studio. Tell us what you did. You were walking on the beach, and you picked up a stick.
2: I picked up a stick, yes, and then I... Help us see, help us see what it was like for you. Okay, so I I just would make a mark in the sand with that stick, and then pace the length of a blue whale, and and then I'd make another mark at the other end. And it was almost quite hard to see because you're on this flat expanse of sand. Um, and I thought about it really abstractly. So I'd looked at lots of pictures um, online and watched documentaries, and I knew that a blue whale is just very, very long and thin. So it's just the lines, I just made gentle curves and then thought about the tail as two triangles and just started to draw it out in a very abstract way. And then started to shade it in with my hands and feet. Um, but I work in a frenzy. So although it was a 30 meter long drawing, it probably took about an hour to do. Um, and you just make the lines of the, the baleen and... Um, it is hard to explain because I can't really see what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, only the people on the cliffs can see what I'm doing. And then I, I, I'll i go up and have a look and most of the time it looked how it, I would imagined it to look but every now and then it didn't. So
1: Every picture that I've seen of these whales and we will put some pictures onto the Climate Psychology Alliance website so that people can actually have a look at these for themselves as well. Everyone I've seen looks like an accurate representation of the different whales. You you draw lots of different whales. Narwhals, mm. humpback whales, blue whales. What's mm. your favourite?
2: Oh, I've never been asked that before. Oh. I've got really into sharks these days, so um, yeah, sharks are my favourite, but probably the blue whale. Mm.
1: Do you know why?
2: Um, It's Probably because of the colour mm. and the way the light shimmers mm. when you know when you see that footage from above and you get those turquoises mm. and the fact that they're just so such gentle creatures they're huge but they mm. they just engulf plankton and they don't mm. yeah I don't know that's probably the grace of it
1: okay well we'll I'll, I shall draw us back to the whales in a minute but t- tell me what happened what else happened on your course because you spent some time with a group called Cape Farewell?
2: Yes, I was really lucky when I was on my masters to do, they called it Short Course UK with Cape Farewell. And a few of us were chosen to go on this mini expedition or a series of mini expeditions. So it would be a few artists and other, a filmmaker came with us mm-hmm. and the ornithologist was on the course and there was a poet I think. And we would go, we slept in the Eden project in the rainforest biome, which was an interesting experience. We Actually didn't really sleep much because of the noise. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we went and did a sweat lodge the next day and, and then we went to the Silly Isles, but all the time we were just having conversations about climate change and how we can make creative pieces of work to try and communicate those issues and spread awareness. Mm. and so those conversations they we, we were going on these trips but they, the conversations just happened as we went So what else came
1: out of the Cape Farewell project?
2: So I was really lucky, I did a presentation about my sand drawings of whales and um, not long after that the captain of a boat called Song of the Whale was looking to get an artist in residence and he spoke to the guy that had been to my presentation and asked him if he knew of anyone that did work about marine life. Um, So he said, me. So the captain rang me up and said, are you free in a couple of months to come out with us on Song of the Whale, which is a purpose-built scientific research boat. Um, And it was funded at the time by the International Fund for Animal Welfare. And marine conservation research but now it's just solely funded by marine conservation research and they took me on for about a month and I just became part of the crew and they'd never had an artist on board before so yeah I was extremely lucky to be asked and of course said yes straight away of course and um so I met acoustic scientists and I learned how to sail and we were on watch you took it in turns you were on a rotor to be on watch you were either up on the it was like a, a platform that you climb up onto to, to to be on watch to see if you could see any, any um, blows uh, out in the distance. So if you saw any whales, and um, or you'd be listening in because they had hydrophone cables trailing behind. So every fifteen minutes you'd listen to see if you could hear the clicks or the whistles or, or whales, and, and that you'd take it turns to be to cook dinners for the crew. And yeah, so yeah, I was just part of the team.
1: And, and tell me about some of the art you created whilst on that trip, because I know you did something really interesting.
2: So when I was on that trip, that was in the Azores, so in the North Atlantic Ocean, the volcanic islands there. And we did go into into a, a marina on one of the islands, and it's a historic whaling um, town. So on one of the beaches, there was a, a whaling factory, and you could see the ramp and the the kind of chimney and um, so they would have dragged sperm whales mainly up onto that beach so I, I did a sand drawing of a sperm whale and I used their disentanglement rod from the boat which is what they used to if they come across any marine creatures that were tangled up in fishing nets um, they would use that to free them so I used that so it was a very symbolic drawing it's probably the most symbolic drawing I've ever done
1: say a bit more about how you think that art can help shift people's understanding about the climate emergency what what part can art play
2: I think um, art can be very accessible I know that people don't always go to galleries but it can be in very public spaces so and it's relatable mm. and it kind of conjures up emotions mm. and it makes people think in different ways so I think it can it can communicate issues in a in a subtle way, which sometimes can be a good thing.
1: Maybe you, I mean, certainly when I think about it, I think about how art can communicate through metaphor. So you haven't got the direct communication, but you've got that. That's what you're saying, the subtle communication. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So um, metaphors can be really powerful when when someone is presented with a piece of work and then they you have a thought process don't you and then you come to a conclusion and then and it's kind of solidified in your mind and then it's carried with you for the rest of time sometimes if it's a really powerful piece
1: because one of the projects we did together was working with a group of children to raise their awareness of climate change and we grew a whale didn't we
2: do you want to talk about that more, or shall yeah, I? No, you start. I'll start. You okay. Start. So the crocus whale was a brilliant project. It was, yeah. You you were inspired by my land art, and I was feeling landlocked in Wiltshire, mm-hmm. so there was no beaches to work on. But um, we we went to Clun Primary School, and we talked about whales and dolphins. Mm-hmm. But then we. I got some chalk spray and the, all of the organic. kids- we all Organic. Say, chalk organic chalk spray, yeah, <laughs> which just washes away. Yeah. And all of the kids stood on, it was perfect. There was a, a staircase on the outside of a building yeah. with a platform. So all of the kids stood on the on the stairs and on the platform and watched me draw this humpback whale calf in the grass. Yeah. And then you said, let's go and get 2,000 crocus bulbs. <laughs> as you do because they bloom in like purples and blues a lot of them so we chose colors that would (laughs) that would work and with the kids we just planted all of these crocus bulbs um and what's really nice is that it will bloom every year Mm -hmm. and then go away and then bloom and then that's that's i i like to think that's you know humpback whales they will always migrate Mm -hmm. and to the same place every year Mm -hmm. And the kids really, really enjoyed it.
1: Oh, I mean, symbolically, I love what you're saying about the migration. I hadn't yeah, thought of that. Yeah.
2: Oh, that is so gorgeous. I really like
1: that. So absolutely, um, symbolically, it was so powerful. We we talk, You're right, we talked to the children about the science and about the impact of climate change on whales and about plankton and warming seas and melting ice and and also about how whales draw uh, carbon from the atmosphere so mm-hmm. that that interrelationship between people and whales and you know they're they're part of our solution about the kind of biodiversity solutions to the climate crisis so we we talked to these children about this and these were mixed age children weren't they yeah. so they were from the age of five six up to ten eleven yeah
2: very young they
1: were very young um the, one of the cute things, which I say ironically, is that we didn't realise how few crocus bulbs small children would plant. <laughs> so we were there till midnight, weren't we? Yes, I messed um, that bit out. Head yeah, torches
2: on. Yeah,
1: yeah. it took a long time. Twisted hands. Long time. Uh, I'm never doing that again. No. Um, not in a million years. <laughs> but it was phenomenal when it flowered. Yes. But there's a couple of things I want to say about it. One of the things that really, because we, you have to ask yourself with these kind of projects, does it work? You know, it's all very well being symbolic and metaphorical and artistic and creative, mm. um, but does it work? Does it have an impact? You know, especially when the University of Bath bought two and a half thousand crocus bulbs for you. Um, <laughs> um, but what some of the, the, the some of the impact on the children? Some of the things the children said to us tells me it really worked so they said what they did was we just planted the bulbs so they were all underground Um, and the children put a circle of chairs around where the bulbs were underground and they stopped their parents from because it was this little shortcut across from the car park to the the bit where their parents would come to pick the kids up and they stopped their parents walking across this grass and they protected the whale with this circle of chairs. Mm, and they carried, right. they carried these chairs out from the classroom, didn't they? They did, yeah. Um, I mean, that just got me. I thought that was just amazing that they had this... What we built was that relationship between the children and the whale. Yeah,
2: and then wanting to protect them. Yeah. Which, yeah. Yeah.
1: And they also recognised... They wrote to us, didn't they? And they did drawings for us. Uh, and Indeed. they wrote about the uh, recognising the whale's vulnerability and recognizing their own vulnerability in the face of climate change.
2: Yeah. It was amazing. They totally got it and they yeah. and it didn't take much prompting from us. So yeah. yeah. It was hopeful.
1: <laughs> Tell us about some of the artwork that you've done more recently then.
2: So, um I have done more charcoal drawings, temporary drawings, um, one was for Oceana which is a marine ocean charity and they did a fashion show in London at Phillips Auction House and um, they invited me to do a, a hammerhead drawing because they're really really endangered. And so I, I I arrived on the day of the fashion show which was happening in the evening and just took over a wall and I used charcoal just directly onto the white wall to draw a hamhead shark life-size and then some like schooling ham heads in the distance which I didn't fix it on the wall at all and it did start to rub away uh, by the end of the evening and then it just would have got painted over the next day but that kind of that talks about how how they are vanishing so this kind of adds to the whole concept that I'm trying to communicate.
1: So, did you get any comments? Did people uh, recognise what you were doing with the hammerhead shark? Did they understand?
2: Yeah. So, because it was charcoal, I know one of the people that was helping set up. He was worried about it fading, so he wanted to fix it. But I told him that we don't need to do that. It, it will just—it's just dust, basically. Mm-hmm. So, um, parts of it will go, and and he and he kind of stopped and thought, oh, "Okay." because it was difficult to understand because with art normally people get quite precious about it and they you want to protect it and preserve it but i cuz i was so relaxed about it and i explained the concept he it kind of se- seemed to hit home so he left it there and and then i do remember at the event people were leaning against the wall and then one person saw that they had rubbed some of the um charcoal away and Yeah, it was quite powerful, I think.
1: Whose idea was it to draw a hammerhead?
2: So, when I was asked, I was asked by Stephanie, who works for Oceana Junior Council. So, she was helping to organise the event for Oceana. And we talked, she wanted it to be an endangered marine creature because the whole show was about conservation. And we kind of went back and forward with different species. And then I think it was her that said, what about hammerhead? And they are weird and wonderful looking. So it was quite a striking piece on a a big white wall. So, yeah.
1: Because they are one of the most vulnerable sharks and they are my personal favourite. So it's it's, I thought it was a really powerful image when I saw it. But it's such a strange juxtaposition of a hammerhead shark in a fashion show even if it is a ecologically you know sound fashion show
2: yeah and I did watch a harrowing video because one of the reasons they're so endangered Mm. is because of shark finning Mm -hmm. and it was fishermen they just hauled one up and cut its fin off and then threw it back in and it's just yeah really got me so I didn't really think too too much about the fact that it was at a fashion show or anything. I just wanted to draw this magnificent creature and bring it into the public eye.
1: So you do, behind your art, you do have, as you, I think you said earlier, that political argument and that, but also that empathetic connection. It's really hard mm-hmm. to sit here and hear you even talk about sharp finning, because it is harrowing. It's one of the most brutal acts that we Commit yeah. in, in terms of crimes against others, yeah. against yeah. other creatures that we I just share can't this planet.
2: People can do that to other creatures. No,
1: no, and there's something about the the deliberate cruelty and brutality, yeah, just for soup. Yeah,
2: mm. I suppose I'm as I as I move through my life, I'm thinking about these issues, and I just try to create visual ways to understand what I'm thinking or to to deal with it I suppose mm. and did it help
1: with your feelings of being upset
2: it it does help yeah because it's channeling how I'm feeling mm. so it's a way of expressing how I'm feeling and I think that does help quite a lot because otherwise you bottle it up and well I get quite stressed so um, it it really really does help but it does also bring those emotions more to the surface so when I make the sand whales it it's a lot of it takes a lot for me to get into the right frame of mind to do it and then when I've made it I'm exhausted emotionally quite exhausted oh. so it's um yeah I think it does help I
1: I wanted to come back to that actually um you, you use the word frenzy when you described yourself yeah. as creating them, you said that you go into a frenzy. And yeah. I know that it's pain in the ass having a psychotherapist keep coming back to talking about <laughs> frenzy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> but um we kinda of have gotta go back to this, Sonia. You know that, don't you? And yeah. you Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. To try and draw it out. Yeah, we're gonna yeah, we're gonna we're gonna just try and get under that oh. surface a wee bit okay. yeah? yeah. So it's it's Give us a sense of what it's like to go into it for you.
2: Okay. Try. <laughs> so I spend a lot of time trying to get into the zone, which it is about shutting shutting everything else that's going on around me out. And then just getting that first mark on the paper. It could take hours, so sometimes... I will spend all day staring at blank walls, and then start to create the work later on. And as soon as I make that first mark, it all happens from there. So, uh, yeah, it it just it's just flows from there. Really, does that make sense?
1: Well, it it makes sense, Sonia, because I've seen you do it. Okay. Right. So yeah. I have stood behind you, watching you stare at a blank wall for okay. s- for a considerable period of time. <laughs> before that first mark appears yeah. and, and, and I've sat there with groups of children mm. waiting for you to kind of move to start yeah. and it's almost like waiting for that inspiration to kind of start through you yeah. Um, but the minute it does, you never, you don't stop. Yeah. I think if someone sort of walked in front of the wall, they would sort of get chuckled. You know. Yeah. It would be, yeah. Because yeah. you, you, it's so you're lost to yourself in that moment. Yeah. So in that moment, you sort of give yourself over to that artistic process. That's one yeah. way of putting it. And
2: I think I must channel all of my thoughts and feelings into mm-hmm. that first mark making, mm-hmm. and then, and then, yeah, and then it's, uh, yeah, focusing all of my everything that's led up to that point into the work
1: But it's almost, But you also described it as losing your sense of self whilst you were in that process, so you forget who you are and you just kind of you become something else, you become the other and then that yeah. sort of takes you over and that's the kind of shamanic process that we were talking about earlier that you, mm. you sort of give yourself over to something, let something happen through you yeah. You, and then you have to return back to the world yeah. after.
2: And I will use anything I can get my hands on during that creative process. So, um when I'm working on this on the beaches, I just dig in with my heels and drag it in any way I can to make the marks. Um Yeah. yeah sure.
1: The other thing that was that that we were talking about as well was the size and the scale mm-hmm. and the fact that you can't see the art as you create it. So, yeah because it's too big for you yeah yeah
2: when you're at ground level and if you're working on the ground you can't get the angle to see to see what you're doing it's um all you can see is a few lines and then they disappear off into the distance
1: I mean, it still completely amazes me that you don't get lost in that drawing. And that somehow, you know, if I was going to do that, you know, one half would look like a well, and the, uh, maybe-ish, and the other half would look, I don't know, like a tractor. I mean, there's just no <laughs> way that I could hold that in my mind. But you do, and you create things that are astonishingly accurate.
2: Well, thank you. <laughs> well- <laughs> um, yeah, I don't... I, yeah, I really... I just, I must just have to think about it very abstractly. I don't think about the entire image in one go. So um, it's, yeah. Mm. I I mean, I I just tried it. I don't know if many people will try and do that. You might be, you might surprise yourself.
1: Oh, that's, that's, I like that idea. So, so you're suggesting that maybe we all have more artistic, capability than because we don't pick up a stick Mm -hmm. on a beach we don't know that yeah okay and the other the other thing that we we kind of reflected on together was that it somehow acts as quite a neat nice metaphor for how much of a struggle it is for people to deal not deal with that's the wrong word to sort of uh, form relationship with this idea of the climate emergency
0: mm-hmm. and the
1: biodiversity crisis that it's yes. too big because they can't see it and they somehow can't hold it in mind and they can't yeah. quite imagine it so they can't really move into relationship with it but yes. somehow you are managing to do that with your whales on the beach so maybe we all have to go into trances maybe we all have to kind of go into (laughs) we have to kind of access that other part of ourselves to try and form connection with it relationship with it what do you think
2: yeah um yeah i agree but then i also like what you were saying to me in the car on the way over here which is that people because it is such a, a big issue and you can't see it it my drawings are big and I can't see what I'm doing and the people on the ground level can't see what I'm doing and that also acts like a, a kind of metaphor for climate change.
1: And I know you've called your art sometimes art made to last less than a day. That yeah. sort of impermanence, yeah. I think, is, has got quite a sort of profound spiritual, soulful connection to it. Yeah,
2: I'm attracted to that kind of art because I don't want to keep creating more stuff. You know, that's, it's wasteful and just working with nature it's just feels it just feels right to me to to create something that that isn't permanent that will disappear and yeah because everything does disappear in the end doesn't it Well, it does, but that's not an
1: idea that's very familiar to us in Western industrialised capitalist society. We like to own things, we like to hang on to things, and that is part of the reason why we're in the trouble we're in. Yeah. But so do you think your art and that impermanence could carry a bigger message in relation to the climate crisis and biodiversity crisis?
2: I hope so. I like the way you said that, because, yeah, um, it definitely feels right to me, so... If it can be communicated to other people then then that would be a good thing I think.
1: I think you're just a bit shy about putting that message out there so I'm just going to have yeah, to I'm yeah. just going to have to help you.
2: I do I do struggle to make my voice heard and yeah. and draw attention to myself so yeah.
1: Maybe if you imagine yourself doing it on behalf of the whales it might be easier? Yeah. That you're speaking with them through them for them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That works. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs>
0: Marine artist Sonia Shemalzadeh was talking to Caroline Hickman. And yes, please, let's all get down to the beach and start making frenzied art on a huge scale. Mine will be abstract, but uh, I can see how cathartic that process could be. Do have a look at Sonia's website to see her incredible sand art and a lot more besides. And we will post pictures on the CPA website too. Climate Crisis Conversations is hosted by the CPA, the Climate Psychology Alliance, and produced by Parity Audio. I'm Verity Sharp. See you on a beach sometime soon. And also back here for more Climate Crisis Conversations.